Hey, film fans, welcome back to week two of Spooktober. Yep, we're still talking about horror movies. I'm your host, Troy, and with me is my co-host, Brad. How you doing tonight, Brad? I'm doing well, man. Spooky. Spooky movies. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we kicked it off last week talking about a remake, The Wolfman, and that was your pick. And so I wanted to kind of be as cool as Brad. So I picked my own remake, and we're going with 1988's The Blob. You, uh, I think you wanted to. One, I think you wanted to one up me. Is what you wanted to do. I, okay. It wasn't a one up. I just I got inspired. I mean, you you picked a remake, and it was something I hadn't seen. And to be quite honest, I I didn't know if you'd actually seen this film before. Had you? Oh, really? Yeah, I've seen this numerous times. This was one of those. When you find out what it is and you see the body count in this movie when you're 13 years old and you're going to Blockbuster with your friends, you rent this all the time. Oh, so okay. this is a, a mainstay for my growing up. So um, you you caught it on VHS then? I did. I did. I, I have the distinct honor of seeing this at Cinemas in the West theater. in yeah. Wichita. I don't know why I remember what theater we saw it in, but yeah. You always remember it. You always remember that. It's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me too, because I don't know how I pulled that one out. So uh, yeah, and, and so the whole premise of the show is to pick films that bombed theatrically or maybe the critics just you know tore to shreds when it came out and reevaluate them. That's the whole premise of the show. And this one, we'll get into the details, but I, I got I to be honest with you. This facet, this pick just fascinated me for one simple reason. It came out in 1988. And I don't know about you, but this year, 1988, it's, it's really, really got my attention. I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a limb here and say 1988 is probably one of the most influential years for films not just horror movies but films in general it's funny it's funny when you had had mentioned like hey look at the films that came out in 1988 i had that same exact thought i was like oh my there's a lot of stuff that has aged very well um and we'll get into what those films are but it's amazing not just the horror films but all the important films that came out in 1988 yeah. And The Blob is a film when when we did Spooky Season last year and we were asking for recommendations, this film like showed up a lot. I mean, we got a lot of requests for it and I immediately put it uh, on the list and <laughs> for next year. <laughs> yeah, for the next year. I, I mean, yeah. I, I hate the fact that we kind of save some of the heavy hitters or I, I would say the heavy hitters that we think are heavy hitters for horror films. For October, because quite honestly, there's there's a lot of horror movies that bombed that I would just love to talk. I mean, heck, we could probably just fill up a year of horror movies that bombed. And we would both probably agree that on on second watch or kind of going back and revisit it, that that maybe the general audience got it wrong and the critics got it wrong. I, I think this is one of those films. But I, I kind of want to talk about the horror movies that came out in 1988 before we talk about The Blob. So, okay, yeah. I, there were approximately 90 plus domestic horror movies released in 1988. So that number would actually, and we're talking theatrical, right? 
So it could be wide release, it could be limited, but we're talking about movies that played in the theater to some degree. Now, if you throw in international films, that number goes higher. But I gotta tell you, I, I spent some time going through the list to see well, what horror movies came out in 1988, and I was shocked. Like, you don't think about it until you think of the list, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you got a Friday the 13th and a Nightmare on Elm Street in the same year. Oh, you got more than that, sir. Oh, you yeah, have yeah. a ton of franchises with with sequels, but you also, I don't know, you you have um, the start of some franchises. You know, maybe maybe lesser known, but I don't know. It's impressive. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm not going through the whole ninety, but I was perusing this list, and I thought there were a few that kind of stood out, and I think it's a pretty interesting testament to how in, just amazing this year is. So the first one out of the gate, Child's Play. That came out in 1988. Yep. Uh, another one that I'm kind of a big fan of, and this would probably be classified sci-fi horror, Critters 2. So the first okay, yeah. Critters yeah. did really well, so the second one comes along. Another one that's on the list that we will talk about at some point is Dead Heat with Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. Yep, and Lindsay Frost is in that too. Yeah, yeah. So it's a yeah. action cop zombie film. Mark yeah. Goldblatt is that that guy? Yeah, yeah. Is he the director. Yeah. yeah, and it and it's you know kind of achieved cult status to to a certain mm -hmm. degree. Here's yep. another one that came out that year from our our I don't know I think we're both fans of this director David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers. Yep. Saw that at Town West. That was creepy. <laughs> That's <was> creepy. <laughs> Mr. Film. Jeremy Irons. Yeah. yeah. Another one of my favorites. Who knows? It, it may show up on the show sooner than later. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Have you have you been uh, checking out her autobiography that just got released? I have, I have. I've I've been listening to the audiobook. Um, I think it's fascinating, and yeah. the fact that she was able to come out and just be like, "Yeah, this is who I am." And honestly, I wasn't really surprised, but I was glad that she, you know, feels comfortable in her own skin to to say that. And she's like, "That's who I am. Suck it." And yeah. I love that. It's a great biography. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing the audiobook too, so I'm I'm yeah. loving the fact she's reading it. So. Uh, here's one international evil dead trap. Have you ever seen that one? I have not. I have not seen evil dead trap. Okay. You need to check that one out. It's, it's a great Japanese, it's Japanese, film. right? Yes. Yep. All right. Okay. Now he, here we get into some sequels, all right. Outside of critters Two, We're really getting into some sequels. We got Friday, the 13th part seven, number seven, the new blood. We also get fright night part two. So fright night's a classic, right? Halloween Four: the return of Michael Myers. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, Howling 4, The Original Nightmare. I mean, there's some <laughs> it's, there's some franchises still kicking yeah. out of those things. And Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Masters. Yeah, so we get uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Warrior, Phantasm 2, which I would, I would debate is just as good as the original. I love it. Poltergeist 3. Return of the Living Dead Part 2, Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, uh, Zombie 3 by Lucio Fulci. Yep. So that, that there one. There it is. Yeah. And then in here's some other films, not necessarily the sequels, probably the scariest film that came out <laughs> that year was uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yeah, your love for clowns. Terrifying. We also get Ken Russell's The Layer of the White Worm. We have Maniac Cop, which is the start of a trilogy. Yes, I love I love Maniac Cop. I do too. 
We get George A. Romero's Monkey Shines. We also get the start of another film series, Night of the Demons. Not to be confused with Night of the Demon that we reviewed this time last year. Uh, here's another one that's going to get some sequels. Pumpkinhead, directed by special effects guru Stan Winston. Scarecrows. Have you ever seen Scarecrows? I have, yes. Oh, man, such a good film. We, we'll have to talk about that one. Uh <laughs> Here's some international flair. Robo Vampire from Godfrey Ho. Have, have you ever checked this thing out? I, I have not seen that. I mean, take Robocop and mix it with a vampire film. Okay. Mean, sounds amazing, right? Yes. It's not. It's not. <laughs> Is um, it? Okay. <laughs> well, it's terrible. But that's but it's why awesome. I, but I love it because it's so terrible. Okay. Yeah, it's awesome. You should watch it. But if you don't love terrible films, stay away from it. Wes Craven. The Serpent and the Rainbow. Great film. I really like that film. Yeah, I agree. Sammo Hung, because we talk about Sammo Hung a lot since the podcast has started, did a uh, spooky comedy called Spooky Spooky. Now, keep in mind, we're talking 1988. So another film showed up in 1988 that we talked about earlier in the year. Do you remember what that one is? Since we're talking about Sammo Hung? Uh, Dragons Forever. Dragons Forever was 1988. Okay. And so Jackie had two movies come out. So that's two shots. If you're listening and playing the, uh, not a bomb bingo. Yeah. He had dragons forever Empty <clears throat> story Two, uh, slugs, which I know is uh, a favorite of a lot of people. Another film that ended up getting a sequel waxwork, which is quite good. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then of course you're slumming with films like wood chipper massacre. Although to me, that's like the worst way to go. Not by an axe or a knife, but a wood chipper. That sounds terrible. Yeah, like Fargo style. Um, would you consider They Live a horror film? Uh, I, I See, that was tough because I look at Critters 2, and I would yeah. say that that has, you know, monster. It, it's geared towards more of that sci-fi horror. They Live, to me, it is more sci-fi. More sci-fi, I don't know, yeah. I, don't know yeah, I think, think so. That. I think you're right on that. Yeah. But this list is crazy, man. Yep. I mean, just yep. from the horror films, there are so many favorites out of this list. And it and it's amazing how some of these franchises, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street, they were on their fourth film. Halloween four had come out that year. Uh Hellbound, Hellraiser Two. That ended up with like nine sequels or whatnot. And you got to the Dollar General Pudgy. Yeah, they're all bad. Pinhead. And and they're still making these things, right? So I, I don't know. Nineteen eighty eight is an amazing year, I think, for horror films. But I'm curious, Brad, out of all of the ones, do you know, I don't know what the top three or four like heist grossing horror films were that year? Um, yes, I do. Um, let me pull up my list because I thought you were going to do that, but I will take the credit for your research. Oh, okay. I shared it with you because I was like, yeah. look at this, man. Yeah. So we have Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, The Dream Master with about $49 million. Child's Play. With $33 million. Uh, the Serpent in the Rainbow with $19.5 million. And then rounding out the top four, Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood with 19.5 as well. So, um, you know, they're not, I, that's 1988 money. Um, so those are all pretty hefty returns on investments. Um, you know, nowadays, a conjuring or something like that makes $300 million or, Paranormal activity makes a bunch of money. But back in the day in 1988, that was a lot of money. So those movies were, and 
combined, those four movies probably cost $10 million to yeah. make. So they, they, didn't, they weren't spending a lot of money on horror movies. No, absolutely not. And, and what's amazing is these films, even after that, now these are domestic. So this is not international. Yeah. Yeah. But think well, about Well, most of the films, like a lot of those early 80s, those 80s horror films didn't play great internationally. So a lot of their like 90 to 95% of their return was coming from domestic uh, box office. Yeah, that's true. Right. Right. Cause there wasn't in, in the reporting on international before I think like 90, I forget when it was, but there's a, a like a line in on the timeline. That's like anything before this international return is a little bit hazy when you look at numbers. Yeah. And, and even child's play, if you look at uh, box office, I think it may have done, I've seen some numbers at 44 million, but I've also seen the domestic at, uh, what was it? 33 million. Uh, So so 11. Yeah, maybe I'm, I'm not sure. It it really gets crazy to kind of get box office numbers, but I think the way it goes is it made 33 million in the U S then it tacked on another 10 million for overseas. So the worldwide gross is 44 million, but to your point, it's rare for these horror films to play outside of it. However, they would have hit, you know, the home video market internationally, obviously. And and let's face it, take something like Child's Play, thirty three million domestic. If it does another ten million internationally, you know, and and it had what a nine million dollar budget, something maybe like the, if that. Yeah, yeah. It was cleaning up on home on home video, and it yeah, still yeah. is. And, I mean, and that's the thing we're we're discounting the fact that these things went on to be rented and bought. Um, you know, th- throughout the nineties, it made probably another $50 million just on that as well. So that's why they kept making them and they could go direct to video as well. And they really didn't lose a whole lot of money because again, it was a part of that time where if you saw the first, you know, Hellraiser, you're watching Hellraiser five or whatever, or that's direct to video because it, you know, your local blockbuster had it. Yeah. And, and I think 88, if you just look at the horror genre, this list is starting to show that Hollywood has caught on to how profitable the sequel can be. Now, mm-hmm. you know, full disclosure, sequels have been around forever. I mean, when we talked about the Wolfman last week, you could talk about uh, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein and then look at how many Abbott Costello monster movies there are. And just the universal monster films had sequel after sequel and they kept bringing Dracula and the Wolfman and everything back. So sequels have been around for a long time long, long time, especially in a franchise, but 1988 and and remakes have been around for a long time too. Yeah, absolutely. So this is nothing new, but I don't know if 1988 is the first uh, year that even, you know, at at this point I'm in high school and I'm, I'm going to all these films and I'm also discovering, you know, Sam Peckinpah's the wild bunch and, and, you know, Stanley Kubrick and all these directors but this is sort of about the time I started to kind of understand like, oh, hey, Hollywood is really starting to create some franchises. And for them, not just having a blockbuster film is important, but having the blockbuster franchise. So you can see they're capitalizing on it with like Friday the 13th and Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street. Those are probably your heavy hitters. But it is amazing to me how many franchises are starting to burgeon, like the Hellraiser series. I mean, Howling is now in its fourth film. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. And then you get something new like child's play comes along too. You're going to get a bunch of sequels out of that. 
Yeah, and and Maniac Cop, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, Phantasm Two is now a sequel to a film from the seventies. So you know, Universal at that point is trying to tap into what movies are out there that we can create a franchise out of. Whereas I'm sure Don Coscarelli, when he did Phantasm in the seventies, wasn't thinking about it in terms of like a, a franchise. You know, he was just no, making a spooky film, not. right? But let's 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 get to the number specifically of the blob because I'm curious. Usually, when you do um, your routine, you're talking about the budget of this film, et cetera. But you're also doing it in comparison to just all the films that came out that year. So we just mentioned off some of the horror films, but I'm really curious. I mean, I, I already know like top probably five film for me came out in 1988, and that's Die Hard. Die Hard, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm just curious how the blob ranks in terms of production. It's all right. I think the Predator's better, but you know what? <laughs> you know what? Let's let's throw down, bud. Let's have this yeah, debate right now. <laughs> uh, we don't have enough time for that. Uh, okay. Yeah. So the Blob, um, obviously 1988 remake, uh, released August 5th of 1988. So the budget is a little weird on this. Um, I found 10 million dollars a few times. But I also saw people quoting a $19 million budget with a $9 million special effects budget. Yes. Um, which I think that sounds a little bit more true. I think that you would spend half your budget um, on special effects for this film. Um, I will say that it only grossed $8.2 million during its uh, box office run. Um, opening weekend, it uh, opens at $2.6 million. Um, ranking in at number eight. So I will, I will list off some more uh, 1988 bangers for you. And Uh, I I remember seeing this film in the theater and I, I know I was there opening weekend and it had to, it was crowded in Wichita. So I don't know what was going on the rest of the country, but yeah, us, you know, Jayhawks were supporting it. Yeah. You Jayhawks did nothing better to do except for look across the whole entire state because it's super flat. And Oh, Oh, we're going there, huh? We're going there to stay away from the (laughs) tornadoes for her. We're out of tornado season by this point. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so the number one grossing film of that week was Cocktail. Yes, Tom Cruise. There you go. There's your Tom Cruise. Uh, number two was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, Die Hard was number three. Coming to America was number four. A Fish Called Wanda was five. Midnight Run was six. And Big was seven. Okay. There was a point in time <laughs> where you could see wow. Big, Midnight Run, a Fish Called Wanda, Coming to America, Die Hard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Cocktail, and The Deadpool, because that was also uh, coming out, and Bull Durham, and Pee Wee's uh, Big Top Pee Wee, which isn't very good, Crocodile Dundee 2, and Caddyshack 2, which, whatever. Yeah, well, um, but anyway, Kenny Loggins uh, had a great hit song out of Caddyshack 2. It's about yeah, the best so, that came so, out of that. Normally, we just do, hey, here's all the stuff that came out, blah, blah, blah. But do you know some of the the, the top grossing films of uh, 1988? So I'm going to guess out of that. So a couple of them. It's not are, out of that. Yeah. But a couple some of, of them are, are in that list, list, right? So I'm, yes. I'm guessing. But the two that come to mind that year, Coming to America had to be top five. Yes, it was. And I bet you Roger Rabbit was top three. Yes, Roger Rabbit was number two. Okay. So here is the – I'll give you – Let's just go through the top 20 because I think, again, 1988 yeah. is fascinating. It is. You have Rain Man, which Rain Man made $345 million that year, which, you know, I think we look back on Rain Man and people might sleep on it now, but it was huge. 
Um, you really think yeah. like people sleep? I, Rain Man's fantastic. Yeah, I, I just I think nowadays in our culture, having Dustin Hoffman play that character might be problematic. Um, so people might try to. I don't know. I think that movie's brilliant. Um, I think Cruise is great in that. Dustin Hoffman is great in that. Um, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is number two. Coming to America three. Big is four. And rounding out the top fives is Twins. Wow. It's crazy to me. Uh, Crocodile Dundee two. Die Hard. The Naked Gun. Wait, Cocktail. Croc- Crocodile Dundee two beat Die Hard? Yes. Okay, that yep. that's a crime. All right, I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. Well, I mean, to to be fair, Die Hard only grossed like eighty three million dollars. Yeah, it's freaking Die. I saw it like the the first run. I know I saw it like six times. Like yeah, I know you times. you accounted for about a hundred thousand dollars. Thank you. Yes. Uh, cocktail, Beetlejuice, Working Girl, A Fish Called Wanda, Scrooged, Willow, Beaches, Rambo Three, Oliver and Company, Bull Durham, uh, Nightmare on Animal Street. The Dream Master and The Land Before Time. Wow. Top 20. Um, some other notable films that I wanted to just call out Bloodsport comes out in 1988. Yes. Um, a uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen comes out in 1988, which is, which is on our list. We, we're going to yes. talk about that Terry Gilliam film. Uh, Frantic comes out, the Roman Plans yeah, film. Harrison Ford. Heathers, Hairspray. Jeez. Um, what else do I have here? Oh, my neighbor Totoro. Okay. Um, the uh, Unbearable Lightings of Being, which is a Philip Kaufman film. Mm-hmm. Um, Chocolat. Uh, I think I said Midnight Run already. They Live comes out. Akira and Dead Ringers, which we already talked about. And lastly, Grave of the Fireflies. So 1988 probably has... Oh, and the vanishing, the vanishing. How can we forget the vanishing? The, the original uh, vanishing, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there's probably fifty like all timers in 1988. I that would is say, amazing like, that's to not me. that's not underselling it. Like that's, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say 1988 might be one of the best years of films of all time. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's the best year ever. And I, I know, you know, you can go back and pull classics from the 70s, 60s, whatever. You you can pick a time period and go. Hey, with within these couple of years, you you've got some just great films that are being produced, right? Uh, but man, in 1988, I really think you see this amazing emergence of I don't know franchises, uh, films that are still standing the test of time. Like you said, they age well. There's mm-hmm. there's some clunkers in there. I mean, every, every year has some clunkers, and and maybe it's but just just, the, just imagine walking into the theater being Troy, being you know in high school. On August 6th, you're just going on a Saturday to the theater, and you're like, all right, I'm going to see Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Die Hard, Midnight Run, Big, and The Blob, like, just this weekend. That's just what I'm going to do. Yeah, it it would have been like, let's go see Die Hard, then let's go see whatever's new. Then the next day, let's see Die Hard again, and then let's go see something else. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's insane that on one day you could see all those films. Yeah, and overseas, Jackie Chan is putting out Dragons Forever and Police Story 2, which... (laughs) I mean, let's face it. Those are two amazing groundbreaking action films, too. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. 88. Holy cow. Um, yeah. Well, let's. All right. So yeah. where was I? Oh, um, so Rotten Tomatoes, which this kind of hurts a little bit. 
The Blob remake sits at a 62% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 50, so 62 with critics and then a 56 with the audience. A, a what was the audience score? 56. So this is one of the things where I believe with our circle, I get like, you know, uh, blinders on. I thought everyone loved this film. I thought it, they did too. Yeah. But when I look at that with plus 10,000 ratings, it's only at a 56. Um, I find that shockingly low. All right. Um, so people, whoever, if you're hanging around with that other 44%, you don't need them in your lives. Just let them go, man. Let them go. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like I said, uh, the blob comes out in August of 88. You can see films like vibes, which I watched that about six months ago for the first Is that time. The Jeff Goldblum, Cindy Lauper. Jeff film? Goldblum, yep. Yep. Okay. It's actually amazing. Okay. Uh, Tucker, the man in his dream. Oh, Jeff Bridges. Really good film. Jeff, yep. Yeah. Um, you have Mac and me, not a great movie. No, no. Uh, the last temptation of Christ. Um, a Nightmare on Elm Street 4, yeah. Married to the Mob, and Betrayed all come out in August. Oh, Betrayed uh, is very good, too. I, Tom yeah, Berenger, yeah, I that's mean, right. I think those are, you take off Mac and me, and I think that's a solid solid release. Wow. And, you know, yeah. what's, what's also, <laughs> so those are solid releases, but you still have the leftovers for that summer that are just oh, yeah, hanging it. around. So yep. it, it makes total sense that a remake of, I don't know, an, an older beloved sci-fi film. Yeah. I mean, Steve McQueen starred in it. So yes, you'd have to be beloved, right? Well, let me, right? let me ask you this. I mean, when you, when you watched the, the 1988 version of the blob, had you ever seen the 1958 version? Cause this film comes out 30 years. Not, I had seen this version first. Um, it wasn't until probably when did I get my hands on that? Um, Probably 2000, I would have been in high school, so around 2000-ish. I remember my dad being, you know, wanting to, to kind of watch that with me. And I remember watching it in the basement with him one night. And um, and then we kind of immediately watched the Blob uh, remake. And uh, and then we watched Beware of the Blob, I think is what it's called. Oh, is that the, uh, yeah. From the uh, 70s. Yeah, the Gentleman's Guide, I think, talked about that. It's from 1972 Yeah, not, I, I didn't something. really like that one very yeah. much. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, this was my first exposure to The Blob um, and then went back to watch the original and then watch that other one from the 70s. So Yeah, so my experience is kind of like yours. I saw this one first. Then uh, when I found out is a remake, because, you know, late 80s, you could still pick up Fangoria and, you know, I, I don't remember Starlog was still around, but you, you had your fanzines, right? Internet wasn't (laughs) what it is today. Um, But I found out that this was a remake, went back and watched the original and thought, oh, it's it's a fun 50s film. Have never, never seen the sequel. Now, Kino Lorber is having a sale right now and the sequel (laughs) is like 10 bucks on Blu-ray. But I didn't pull the trigger because I I don't know. There's nothing about that sequel that makes me want to go and watch it. Should I? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Because usually I listen to the review on Gentleman's Guide. And I'm like, well, I got to buy that. And, and even hearing them talk about it is like, yeah, I'm still, yeah. I'm still, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Dude, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still kind of shook by the 50 set, 56% on the audience score. I'm not going to lie. That is shockingly low. That surprises me. Because like you, yeah. I, I thought it was one of those where critics didn't get it at the time. Yeah. But everybody who sees this film likes it. So, hmm. I mean, at least in our circle, like everyone loves this film. 
So, so it makes maybe I'm just it makes total sense that this thing was going to bomb out of the gate. Do you think? Oh yeah, I mean they released at the end of the summer. You yeah. still have things like Die Hard, and uh, you know we talked about some of the all time greats coming out around this film, and it's easy to think about a horror film remake uh, coming out that is pretty much like body horror, the movie and not doing great in the theater. Right. But then being like getting a second life on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and all that stuff like that. This movie was built for media like that and not the theater. Yeah. It, it, I feel like even when I saw it in the theater, I thought I was watching something special and I remember renting the heck out of this from Popcorn Video was our video store. Nice. And uh, just loved it. So let's talk about the people who made the blob, both you know behind the camera and front of the camera. Let's start with director Chuck Russell. You know, when, when you start putting notes together, I'm always surprised when I run across a director. And I, I don't know Chuck Russell that well. But when I look at his filmography, it's like, holy cow, I've pretty much almost seen every Chuck Russell film out there. So he starts off doing a screenplay in 1984 uh, called Dreamscape with Dennis Quaid, which Mm -hmm. I love that film. It's fun. I mean, it's early 80s, right? He goes on to direct A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors from 87. Yeah, he wrote that as well, right? Wrote that as well. Does The Blob in 88. And here's, (laughs) this is me not paying attention. I know. You could have given me a million guesses and I never would have gotten this. Well, the next two I wouldn't have gotten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Mask, Jim Carrey, 1994. He directed that. Arnold Schwarzenegger's Eraser from 1996, which I think is, I mean, would you consider like the last big Arnold Schwarzenegger traditional blow him up film? I mean, I love Eraser. Yeah, I love Eraser too. Yeah, I I think that's it. I think that's kind of the line in the sand and everything after that gets a little diluted. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, and I wouldn't have guessed this either. Bless the child in 2000. Yeah. The scorpion King in 2002 with the rock. And, and here's one I was super excited about. He did some episodes or just one episode of uh, fringe, the TV series, which I, I, I like fringe series. a lot. Love um, that series. He did the pilot. Yeah. And then yeah. afterwards, I've not seen anything. I Am Wrath in 2016 with John Travolta. Uh, Jung Lee uh, from 2019 where he did the screenplay and he's a director, but I think that's a Bollywood film. So, but uh, I'm, I'm that's curious. That's why I've never heard of it. Yeah, I'm curious to check it out now. Uh, just, I, I like Bollywood films. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, as a director, dude, this guy's made some. He's got. He's got some classics on there, man. I mean, the mask, say what you will about the mask, but it's, it is a time and place and was huge. Eraser. I, I love a lot. Yeah. Um, I love, I love even the Scorpion that, that King. Scorp- the Scorpion King's fun. It's yeah. a fun, dumb movie with the rock. So yeah. And fringe. There yeah. I liked fringe a lot. I mean, I wanted it to be like X-Files 2.0. It wasn't, but it was still okay. It was yeah. still a fun show. No, I loved it. It's, it's one of the few TV series that I've gone back and watched again. So that's oh, okay. Yeah, I, I know I should have been watching Breaking Bad, but yes. there was fringe to watch yep. again. So let's talk about the screenplay. Right. So Chuck Russell wrote it. And here's the other thing that, uh, again, I didn't pay attention to this stuff as many times as I've seen this film. Chuck Russell writes a screenplay, but you also get Frank Darabont. Yep. Frank freaking Darabont. So Mr. Shawshank Redemption himself. Yeah. I I mean, a lot of people know him from Shawshank Redemption and the Green Miles, writer, director. He also did The Mist, 
uh, writer director. So the Stephen King stuff totally um, didn't know that he also contributed to the screenplay of a nightmare on Elm street three dream warriors, mm-hmm. which I'm sure that's where him and, and Chuck hooked up. He did the fly Two screenplay from 1989, which I like quite a bit. And then 1994, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He was the writer for that as well. Yeah. I like that film a lot. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Russell, the, Frank Darabont, the mist, the mist yeah. yeah, is another one. So yeah, I know that's a, that's a great, one, two duo, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. And the story is credited to Irving uh, H. Milgate. I guess I guess we should also say The Walking Dead, right? Like you Yes, I The okay. Walking Dead. I mean, yeah. that's another cultural phenomenon. I he exited early on, right? Yeah, I think he only made it through like the first two seasons, I want to say. Yeah, I think, something like when that. When it was good. <laughs> yeah. So when the show was good, it was, you know, Frank Darabont. then after that. I can't remember when I stopped watching. It was a while ago. I literally I watched the first two seasons and after that I was done. I, I think I made it a few more seasons after that. Um okay. but story by Irving H. Milgate, based on the blob, the film by Theodore Simonson and Kay uh Lineker. You talked about this already. So the film had a budget of nineteen million dollars and and we said this already, nine million of it, so about half of it went towards visual effects. Let's talk about some of the people that did the special effects. So there's a huge special effects crew behind the scenes, but I want to talk about some names um, in particular. So special makeup and animatronic effects designer and supervisor was Tony Gardner. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at his filmography, there's some interesting things on here. This guy has been working for a long time and not just in horror films, but I noticed around 1990, he did dark angel, AKA I come in peace with Dolph Lundgren which is oh yes i love that movie a great movie shit yeah he worked on nightbreed the clyde barker film in 1990 he so these are three films he did in 1990 so uh, i come in peace dark angel nightbreed and dark man sam raimi's dark man he also worked on army of darkness in 92 and here's some sampling of things that he did outside of horror there's something about mary in 1998 seed of chucky in 2004 hairspray in 2007 so the remake Zombie Land in 2009 and 127 hours in 2010. So this guy yeah, has yeah. done, I mean, he's a pretty well-known Hollywood special effects designer. He worked with Daft Punk as yep. well. Yeah. So, you know, just doing all that stuff. That's crazy. So you get Tony Gardner working on this thing. Then you also get special effects. Now there's a couple of just special effects artists and they're credited with different things. So some might work on the blob, some might work on, I think they just had a special effects designer for the meteorite um, that you know was in the blob. But uh, here's some names that kind of popped up that caught my eye. The other one was Nick Benson. So he worked on Dead Heat, which we just talked about that in terms of horror uh-huh. films that came out in 88. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 in 88. He also worked on Howling 4, the original Nightmare in 88. So this guy was busy all in 1988. Uh, here are the films that caught my eye. Society in 1989. Okay, yeah. Brian Usna's yeah. Society, I think he's that's the yep. guy who directed that. Tremors in 1990. Wow. Yeah. That's a good credit to have. Yeah, and if you want to hear a great Tremors episode, um, we'll plug another podcast, VHS Files Podcast. Did a whole episode on Tremors. It's a lot of fun. And another one in 1990, Bride of Reanimator. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I just watched Reanimator like the other day. Oh, so just good. Because... So good. <laughs> Uh, then we get another special effects art- artist, uh, Robert Devine. You'll love this, Brad. Uncredited Blade Runner, 1982. Uncredited Robo, or excuse me, Total Recall, 1990. 
but then he's a special. I wonder effects. why you're taking none credit. You're not taking credits for that work. I, I'm sure he was just working on it. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't it's probably have union maybe or, not union. Yeah, yeah exactly. something like that. So, not exactly legal. Maybe guy paid in cash. Yeah, but here's the stuff he gets credited for that I know you're gonna love. Well, two of these I love. So we get RoboCop two in 1990. Say what you will about that film. There's some really good special effects in that film. Yes, there's yeah the special effects are on point. Okay, here here you go. Hot Shots, 1991, and Hot Shots Part Deux in 1993, Coneheads in 1993, and this one's a banger. You ready for this? Face Off. Nice. Yep. Nice. There you go. So, uh, man, that you've got. Some- I want his face <laughs> off. Off. No, uh, that that's an amazing crew yeah. of special effects. These people artists. have some really cool credits to them. Yes. Yeah. And, and not credits and uncredited <laughs> stuff. Now, if Jose were here, we would be talking about cinematography and editing and yeah. stuff like that. But you know what we're, Jose would not talk about, which is a very important role in any film. It's the accounting and auditor. Right. Ooh, yeah. tell me about the right accounting up. and auditor. So I, don't know if, I, I was curious because I know you follow um, these folks within the trade. Uh, I don't know if they have their like their own like baseball card like stuff, you know, like movie yeah. cards. with. Okay. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we have our trading cards. Yeah. Okay, cool. So at the time, the assistant auditor on the blob was Deborah Houtsma. Okay. You, you was she a big four? Do you know, do you know what... A, what accounting firm she worked for? I don't know the accounting firm, but it, she uh, seemed to move up after the blob because in 1992, she was promoted to post-production accountant on Year of the Comet. And that same year, she was a post-production accountant on Mr. Saturday Night. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 1993, she was a post-production accountant for Amos and Andrew. And she hit the big leagues in 2009 as a production controller on a dog named Christmas. Wow. Good job. Production controller. Yeah. Man, that should be me. I know. Production controller. I think, what am I doing? Why are you not moving out to Hollywood and following in Deborah's footsteps? I, you can make a name I, you for yourself, what? bud. I don't have the balls to do it. So. All right. Well. Good on you, Deborah. Um, let's talk about. Are you the, trying to make me feel bad? Is that what you're trying no, to No, I'm just. I, I brought this up because I think if you're like, hey, let's pick up the family, move out to California. Can I make a living? Working in the film industry, you can, Brad. Now, you'll have to probably start as the post-production accountant, but you, too, can be That's a production fine. controller. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it didn't – it it took a it took a little bit for her, but, hey, look, there's a because lot Because you of, think a lot of the checks are coming in. A lot of the – your 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 payables are pre-production and, and during production. You yeah. know, post-production is probably the least important. We'll see. I've, yeah. I don't yeah. know. I, I would love to interview Deborah and, and get her thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the people in the film. We, we need to start with uh, one of my favorites from the 80s, Shawnee Smith. Now I know she's done okay. films outside of the 80s, but when the, the film that uh, I remember her from outside of the blob is uh, 1987 Summer School. Are you a fan of that film? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, I was hoping you were going to start with, isn't she an Iron Eagle? Yes. Okay, but I, I Iron Eagle's fine. I like Summer School <laughs> way better, and uh, you know Iron Eagle isn't fine. I don't know why Luke Gossage. Look, if no. you're gonna watch an airplane film from the '80s, why would you not watch Top Gun? Top Gun, yes. You exactly. got two hours of your life. Don't waste it on Iron Eagle or Iron Eagle Two or Iron Eagle Three. 
go right to Top Gun. And I know Shawnee Smith's in that, but if you're gonna watch a Shawnee Smith film, you're either watching The Blob or Summer School. And then if you're slumming, maybe you watch from the 80s, Who's Harry Crumb from 89. Yeah, she had a weird career there because when I was looking at her credits, it's like starring role in The Blob. And then it's something like she was in Leaving Las Vegas, but she was just credited as like Biker Girl. Yeah. Um, And then it was like, the low life she's like you know little tramp woman and then you know it's just weird and then she's in armageddon and she's credited as redhead it's <laughs> yeah, like what did. happens and then saw comes around and you're like oh no not the saw series yeah you're right so 2004 i, I feel most people know her from that now in the horror franchise from saw yeah and then she's in you know the original saw saw two three and four uh but i mean to me, her best films are The Blob and Summer School. Those are, yeah, I love yeah. them. She's fantastic in them too. And that brings us to our our other star, Kevin Dillon, right? So, nepotism in Hollywood at its finest. Kevin plays the role of Brian Flagg, and I got to be honest with you. Uh, outside of this film, I know him from Platoon. And a film, No Escape, with Ray Liotta. Did you ever see that one in 94? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I watched Entourage too much. Um, yep, never seen it. Growing up. Uh, you know, he's not Matt Dillon. He's Kevin Dillon. Yes. You wish you wanted. You wish you had Matt, but you got stuck with Kevin. Yep. We, you know, we all have people like that where you go over to their house. And you're like, hey, is Matt here? And they're like, no, he's not right now. But Kevin's here. You're like. Well, I don't want to play by myself, so I guess I'll play with Kevin. <laughs> sure, why not? I mean, he's better than that, but not much. He's he's not great. He's Let's no Chad that. McQueen or uh, oh. <laughs> what's the other Swayze brother? Um, oh. Terrence Swayze. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Uh, let's talk about Donovan uh, Leitch Jr. as Paul Taylor. He's in... I don't know who this guy is. He's got a lot of credits, but I'm like, oh, I've seen electric uh, break into electric boogaloo. Apparently, he was in that in glory in 1989, but have no idea. Yeah, I couldn't I, pick I this guy out of a lineup. Yeah, and the movie starts with him, like he's he's you're you're following him yeah. around. So yeah, now here here are some names and some faces you do remember. They're great character actors. Jeffrey Demon is Sheriff Herb Geller. You'll know him from Frank Darabont's The Green Mile in the Mist. Uh, he's been in tons of films, but those are the two that stick out. He's in Shawshank as well. Oh, yeah, that's right. He is in Shawshank. Yeah. So Candy Clark is Fran. I got to be honest with you. I remember Cl- Candy Clark specifically from American Graffiti because she plays mm-hmm. Debbie. Yeah. Um, but she's been in a uh, ton of stuff. The man man. who, the, the man who uh, fell to earth, I remember her in that film as well. Um Cat's Eye. She's in Cat's Eye for a horror film. Isn't she in as cool as ice too? Yes. So she's here. Okay. Yeah. She's in uh, cool as ice. She's been in Q, the winged serpent from 82 blue thunder in 83, which is the Roy Schreider. Remember when we were all fascinated with, well, you weren't around then um, <laughs> with helicopters and action films. She was in Amity 3d in 83. You talked about cat's eye at close range in 86 with uh, Christopher Walken Sean she was on previous episode Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, she played Buffy's mom in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the 1992 film. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. all you need to know is American Graffiti because Debbie. That's yep. that's her iconic role. 
Uh, Joe Seneca is Dr. Meadows. There's as soon as I see this guy, I immediately think of crossroads from 1986. Willie Brown. I love that film. Oh Ralph yeah. Macchio. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He, he's also in Silverado from 1985, which unfortunately I don't think we'll ever get to talk about because it was a hit and critics liked it. And so it's not going to be on a podcast called not a bomb, but yeah. Um, he was also in Malcolm X, I believe. And, Oh, what was that other one? Uh, a time to kill time oh, to kill. Yeah. Can I make a pitch to any? So I know, uh, on a lot of our social media accounts, we have other podcasters who follow us and listen. If anybody is talking about Silverado from 1985, <laughs> we Troy. can't discuss it, but please send me an email. Cause I would love to just you know, talk a few hours about that Western. I love that Western. The cast in that is ridiculous. But listen, um, Josh, I've, I've told you, I haven't got a phone call back. Hit me up, man. What are we talking about, Silverado? <laughs> I know you have the VHS, Josh. So, all right. Uh, Del Close as Reverend Meeker. This guy's creepy. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off as the English teacher. And uh, The Untouchables. I remember that. He was the accountant, right? Something like that. He's the accountant that they're interrogating. I think so. Yeah. Now here's an interesting fact. Am I supposed to know that? Or do I just know all accountants? I think you, yeah, I think you know that. Okay. Um, you should know him from beware the blob from 1972. He was the hobo wearing eye patch. So they brought somebody from the original movies. Oh, okay. There's one other guy I want to mention. Uh, Paul McCrane as deputy bill Briggs. Anytime I see this face, I immediately think of RoboCop. He played a meal. So he's the dude that gets in the toxic waste and is sort of all gloopy. And melty man. Melting right? man. And then, yeah, yeah, gets smashed by the, the truck at the end. But here's some interesting facts about Paul. Um, after he got hit with the truck, he's like, all right, forget that. I'm not getting any good Hollywood parts. So he goes off to be like a TV director. And he did episodes for The West Wing, House, ER, CSI, Glee, Empire, Chicago PD, and Chicago Fire. He's still directing. And he directed an episode of the X-Files. Yes, that's right. So uh, you, have to, you have to mention that. The X-Files, true. Yes. Is that on our bingo card, like X-Files, Jackie Chan? It should be, yeah. Cruise? Okay, yeah. good. This is on paper fascinating in terms of the people behind the camera, especially. But I got to tell you, if you were trying to put together a film that uh, was going to you know, have to have a good ensemble cast with some great character actors. This is a great choice in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you got to look at it as a cost analysis as well and say, who can we get to keep this? Cause we're already spending $9 million on special effects. We have to keep it under 19. Uh, so we have $10 million for other stuff and, some of that $10 million has to go to pay actors. So yeah. who can we get for a good price um, and who they got? I think they did a really good job to kind of assemble a, a really solid cast. And yeah. you look back on it, you're like, man, they, they got it right. They did really well. Yeah. There's, I, I mean, honestly, in the list of people that we talked about, can, do you think there's anybody that's sort of, I don't know, delivers a weak performance? I don't, I think, I think from Shawnee all the way down to Paul, they're all fantastic. I mean, some stand out better than others, but this is a really solid cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, the rapey guy, you know, whatever. You know, he is what he is. But uh, oh, uh, Paul's uh, Paul Taylor's friend. Yeah, is it Scott? Is his Scott, name Scott yeah, or something yeah, like that? That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. It's typical eighties eighties <laughs> rapey football player, right? That was like a eighties yeah. trope, 
I that think. was a trope. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm curious, man. Cause I actually kind of thought you had never seen oh, this before. Yeah. So now that, you know, you got to revisit it. Um, what, what did you think about going back and watching the blob? I mean, I, I I'm, I, I it makes per- perfect sense in the context of what came out in horror films. And then also when this got released, it, I, there's clearly a smoking gun of, of it bombing, but you know, what are your thoughts? Is it justified? I guess. I, I, I can see why, but I love this movie like just because of not just because, but I, I love this movie a, because the practical effects are so charming and so delightful to see. And they're doing so much. They're doing miniatures. They're doing green screens. They're doing, uh, you know, silk quilts that are filled with this slime to make the, the, uh, the blob itself. They're doing all this stuff to put together like this special effects bonanza that costs less than $20 million, which I find just, I don't know, like charming is the word. Like it, it just has a look to it and it achieves so much. Um, the deaths in this movie, I think, are some of the best deaths in horror period. Uh, the phone booth is one of the best things I've ever seen. The guy, um, Paul in the hospital, like when he kind of pulls out his face and it stretches back, like all the deaths in this are just a plus. Like, I don't think there's a death in this that I don't think is amazing. Like the kitchen um, is great. Even the, that little snotty kid, like they kill a kid in this movie and it's awesome. Yeah. It's weird. Let's preface. So we're, (laughs) we're sitting here going, man, the deaths are so cool. And they killed a kid. I mean, yeah. For a horror film there, there is something about, um, well, let me, I guess, let me phrase it this way. The, the deaths in here aren't simply gratuitous, but I think they not only look realistic, they're unusual. You've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Yeah. But they also hit hard because in a short time you get connected to a lot of these characters. Yeah. Like Paul, we start off and we think Paul is our hero Yeah, and we think, Oh, this is the guy we're going to. And then like Alfred Hitchcock comes along and he dies and he, you know, he gets killed, I guess like in the first act of the film. And you're like, Oh gosh, like if he can die, Anybody can die. And that's kind of how it goes. Um, you know, you get, you get that first opening of the film and it's very like quiet. And you're like, what is going on with this movie? I had forgotten how it started and it's quiet and all this stuff. And then you're like, oh yeah. Cause everyone's at the football game because you know, it's a small town and that's what everyone does on a Friday night, you know, Wichita, Kansas or whatever. They're all going to the which, high school which football saw, game. Which has the city. That's all right. If you were like Hayes, Kansas, yes, this would have been exactly like Hayes, Kansas. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. And so, you know, you get that opening and then I I just think everything for this movie works for me. Um, You know, you kind of get your typical Kelly Leak slash bad boy uh, character with flag. Is it flag? Brian. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Brian. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and they, you know, I, I don't know what it was about the eighties, but our bad boys had to ride motorcycles. They had yeah. to smoke cigarettes and they had to wear leather jackets. Yes. And if you did all three of those things, you were the baddest guy on the planet. 
Yep. Um, oh, yeah. And your father had to be gone and your mother had to be some kind of whore or something like that. Because that was all that was all it was. Um, I, I just man watching this movie when I watched it on Saturday was just a joy. It's weird because, you know, people are just melting in this movie or, <laughs> you know, becoming just puddles and stuff. But it's it's fun. Like it it. It, again, it it just achieves so much and is so effective. Um, you know, some of the effects now don't hold up very well. Like, obviously, that ice truck is a miniature. Like, it looks like a miniature. But, you know, they're going for a lot of things. And I just appreciate and love the way this film looks, uh, the way it feels. Like, you can feel the blob, like, the way it moves. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about a film also that like kind of shifts the narrative more towards like conspiracy theory in yeah. a way. Like, you know, we have our government that is creating this biological weapon. And I guess, you know, they say something about maybe like unleashing it on Russia and all this stuff. And you're like, boy, I bet these Q people love this film. It's proof that, you know, the government's out there trying to do something, but um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it does enough to, to distinguish itself from that fifties version to kind of merit it being um, its own film. And, and I got to say like you and I and Josh were texting the other day and he had said, you know, Oh, we were thinking about doing the blob on our podcast, but you all are doing it. So we might wait. And then I had said, you know, I think this and the thing are proof that, you know, remakes can work and you can do remakes and they could change that core idea not change the core idea, but change enough to where it feels different, but still kind of pays homage to the original. Um, and I think this one is a, when people get mad about remakes, you, you say, well, the blob is 10 times better than the original, the blob from the fifties. I think, I think it's way better. So yeah, I, I love this film. I love it. Um, I loved it when I was 12 years old and saw <laughs> that guy's leg sticking out of the kitchen sink all that stuff. It just, it's what you want in a horror movie for what it is. Uh, you're going into a film called the blob. You want to see people get, you know, blobified or whatever. So yeah. Blobified. I like that. No, I, I'll tell you what the watching it again, the thing I totally forgot at how that this movie does so well is the misdirection. So yeah, I agree with you. It has, it has great special effects Yes, it it's probably one of the best examples of how to do a remake. Of course, it has one of cinema's worst haircuts, but it also <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it also has one of the best ensemble cast you're going to see in a film like this, or you know, pretty much any film. But the thing that always catches me off guard as many times as I've seen this is I'm always surprised at how good this movie is at surprising me. So, you know, this isn't a case of a monster attacking a bad one-dimensional character. You get a little bit of that with Paul's friend Scott. Um, and, you know, the good guy's kind of surviving at the end. You're, you're introduced to really likable characters who are in danger, and not all of them are going to survive. I mean, if you, if you want to see where maybe Frank Darabont was going with The Walking Dead, <laughs> you could probably go back to the blob and say... Yeah, he's he's yeah he's been doing Where this no for one a while, is, right? Basically, no one is safe. Yeah, and you you don't you don't know who's going to make it, right? But there's this is one of the few horror films 
that I've seen in a while, uh, even of the new stuff where there's like a real sense of danger in the film. And you talked about this. I, I think the twist really works in this thing, you know, in the original. So I, I watched the original too, just to go back and revisit it because I remember seeing the original after seeing this remake and going, yeah, it was okay. And watching the original now, I appreciate it for what it is for like a 1950 sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. And I can see where they're like, oh, Steve McQueen. Yep. He's going to be a star, you know, but man, as a, as a film, it just grinds to a halt in a few sequences. Uh, this one never does that. I mean, it starts out with a pretty good pace and it builds and it builds and it builds to what I think is a really impressive, like climactic showdown. Mm-hmm. But man, I, I love the fact that this movie is great at playing with horror movie tropes and subverting your expectations like every step of the way. So as as much as I want to talk about the special effects and just go, man, holy cow, do you remember this? How amazing is that? Yeah. Um, I really think it comes down to this is a a really like two two pieces of information, two key pieces of things about this film set it above the rest. It's the screenplay and some of the twists and misdirections that happen, and it's the performances. Those two things set it above most of the horror films that came out of the 80s or, you know, any genre. And and they hold up today. Which is why I'm surprised that Shawnee Smith didn't become, I mean, I know this film bombed and it wasn't the biggest thing on the planet, but she's so good in this movie. And she's she carrying is. so much weight in this movie. It's surprising that she didn't get anything from this movie, it seems. I mean, she struggled after this. And it's crazy to me that you can put in a performance like this um, and basically, I mean, she's basically the hero of the film and nothing. She's nothing after this film. It's sad. Yeah. I, I, I believe you. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you how good the performance is. You actually believe the chemistry that starts to develop between um, her and Kevin Dillon. And, and I, I throw Kevin Dillon, you know, a, a lot of compliments too, because He's really good in it. You know, he has that bad boy persona, but he he's good at kind of um, letting that Shawnee Smith character kind of break him down a little bit because yeah. as soon as she starts to get upset, he's like, okay, I'll back off and, you know, gets her to laugh a little bit. But you can tell that the on-screen chemistry really develops as a result of the performance. And let's face it. Yeah, I mean, and they have great little, like there's a, a part I remember of this film. I even remembered it back when I saw it is like, she goes something about the front doors locked or whatever. And he picks up her brick. He goes, don't worry. I got the key. And yeah. Like just lines like that, like exactly how people should say them and what you would say in that situation. Um, it's little things like that, that this film gets right with those character moments. Oh, I agree. And I think Kevin Dillon deserves some kind of honorary Oscar for pulling off like a performance like that with that hair, with that hair. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I mean, if you want proof that Kurt Russell is probably the only guy on the planet that can make a mullet look cool, go watch the blob. And, and again, you, this is, this is terrible. This is how shallow <laughs> I am. You watch the first five minutes of this film. And as soon as he's, you're like, what the heck is on his head? Um, but then is it a wig? Do you think it's like a Samurai Cop-esque wig? Or I don't know. I mean, who knows? But Did they film half this film and then tell him to go do something else and then they had to come back to do reshoots and he's just wearing a wig for half the time? Could like be. Or, or, hey, let's give you this so that when the stuntman's like jumping the motorcycle, 
Yeah. We don't have to, you know, we can put a helmet on him and it looks like your hair. I don't know. But I, I got to tell you, 10 minutes into the film, I didn't even think about it anymore because I, I really liked Kevin Dillon as a, mm-hmm. as a character. And I really liked him and Shawnee Smith working together. I mean, they, they, they just clicked and connected. And to me, that's important, right? I mean, you don't always have to have a likable character in your films. I mean, we, we love watching movies where heck you're just following the antagonist around, right? Or you have unlikable characters, but there's, there's some authenticity here between that relationship and, and the other relationship that I really think just has this great chemistry and authenticity is between the sheriff and Fran. Yeah. I I was surprised at that one too, because they don't do a whole lot of setting up with that. It's really just that interaction of him sitting at the cafe or diner and, you know, talking and then there's these little character moments where, you know, he gives her the card and then she's like, well, you know, I got to work. And then he looks down at his little pay stub and, you know, I get off at 11 and you're like, oh, okay. Like they've had a pass before, I'm sure. And they flirted or whatever. And, and this is the time that he took his shot and he thought he failed. But then he looks down at that receipt and he's like, oh yeah, you know, awesome. Like I, I did it this time. Um, again, they get those character moments right in this film. Um it, it, and that kind of elevates this film to be better. You know, like it could just simply be people die from a blob and that's it. But when we get to care about these people and we were set up to know that any of them can die at any time, we're like, oh, I, I care about their relationship. I care about Frayne. I care about the sheriff. Um, you know, I don't really like his deputy or whatever, but, uh, you know, I'm glad he gets his. So you get that too, you know, you have those characters you want to live, but you also have, uh, the Scott in the, what was the other deputy's name? I don't know, but you know, I'm talking about the redhead guy with no soul. Um, well, the, the one deputy starts to come around at the end and he just ends up yeah, getting braised. Still, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 what, what do you think about this? I mean, from a character perspective, the, what, the other thing I kind of like about this film for a horror film in, Maybe, maybe it's not totally realistic, but for, you know, the, the 90 minutes or two hours that you're in this world, I never felt like people were making dumb decisions. Like all the, all the decisions that they made were actually coming from the characters that had been established and they, they were right in line with everything that had been presented up to that point. So even when danger happens or, um, you know, a great example is there is a point when, uh, you know, Brian and, uh, so Kevin Dillon's character and Shawnee, they're, they're in a truck and he's like, yep, I'm going to bust out of here and we're going to take off. And she's like, nope, we got to stay here, follow the rules. Cause I'm going to get to see my parents and he bails. And it makes total sense based on that character. And then even his, I I guess, decision to kind of turn around and go back, it makes total sense. Like I never thought that people were doing things to just forward the plot. They were doing it because that was the character that was presented. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he learns that his theory about, well, like how do these people know to get here so fast at all? Like he's thinking about this stuff internally. Then he realizes, oh, these people knew this was going to happen. This is all sorts of a, a, a government thing. And then he has to turn around and be like, okay, 
now I know what's up. I've got to, I've got to do something now. Um, so like that reluctant hero thing for him fits exactly, but he knows what he has to do at that moment in time. Yeah. Which, which brings up Joe Seneca because he makes a great second villain or a villain in the second act is what I'm trying to say. I mean, you got the blob yeah. out there, but having him as sort of this government uh, official comes in and is like, hey, it's not an alien. It's something that we created and the satellite came. Uh, that twist is fantastic, I think. Yeah, yeah. So remind me that this in the original, it comes, it's an out, it's like an alien, right? Yeah, it's a medium. And then this, yeah, yeah. So they kind of play into that in this one as it, it looks like a meter at the beginning and can, can man is, uh, you know, looking at it all you know, with his teeth all hanging out and stuff. And, uh, you think it's still a meteor and then they kind of have that reveal when they pull it out of the ground that it's actually like a satellite or whatever. So, um, that I, I do like that they, again, change enough to where it's like, Oh, this is not exactly a beat for beat remake of, of that other version. So, yeah, but it, it, I don't know. It's weird. Cause in watching the first one, it starts off to be, <laughs> I, I think it's really cool that they're, they're following, I, I don't know if it's beat for beat, but it's following the same story setup as the original blob where meteor falls, old man in the woods touches it, goes on the hand. You have um, the, I don't know, clean cut jock or, you know, the Steve McQueen like character yeah. is on a date with the girlfriend and they find the guy. I mean, it's following everything that the original did from a setup and then it totally just usurps your expectations kind of going forward. I mean, it's really, I, I think that's really smart because you're, if somebody goes, wait a minute, I saw that film while I was necking with my girlfriend back in the fifties. Right. And they do a remake and you're curious. It, it's probably a fun watch. If you saw the original, you come into this and you go, Whoa, they just went for a whole left turn. And where's this going to go? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the misdirection is, is again, like you had mentioned that just anyone in this film can, can get it. And, and that, makes you really be on your toes with characters. Cause I even thought like, does Kevin Dill, does Brian make it through this film? Cause it, it wouldn't surprise me if he, if he didn't. Do you think, do you think that watching, in my opinion it does, but do you think watching this one and then trying to go back and revisit the original, like this one spoils it? Cause you're watching the original and you're like, well, it, <laughs> Steve McQueen makes it and oh, fire extinguisher makes it cold. I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying nothing happens in the original version, but I, I don't I, know. I would, I would be, I, from what I remember, I think I would be spoiled out of this one because it, it actually has a nice pace. Um, I thought that original, if I remember correctly, was kind of boring. Um, and uh, this one, literally from scene after the football scene and you're like going and once it, once the blob is on that guy's hand, it's like, okay, here we go. Like the body count is starting up and we get to that hospital and then it is just going from there and it doesn't let up. Um, pretty much. I don't know if there's like a slow part of this movie. Like characters obviously take a breath every once in a while, like Brian and uh, Meg sit at the diner and have a sandwich together for a minute. But then, you know, that turns bad. Uh, there's a part in the movie theater where, you know, I love the movie theater scene. Cause it's like this, you know, Friday the 13th reject film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, characters are kind of enjoying a moment then, and then that goes bad. Um, 
So isn't there a, a, a kind of a theater scene in the original? Yeah, in the original. Yeah. Um, so it's actually not too far from me. I think it's called The Colonial. So okay. that's where they filmed the the sequence for The Blob. And it might be this, uh, might be around Halloween. Every year they recreate that scene. So everybody goes in the theater and they watch The Blob. And then everybody comes running out of the movie theater because that's the actual movie theater where they filmed it. Yeah. Did you know that was like miniature? They did that part like in miniature? Yeah. The theater so, scene is miniature and like uh, rear projection stuff. Like it's, it's, you know, they're pulling out all these stops to, to put these, you know, scenes together because, you know, they don't have an unlimited budget. So like rear projection and miniatures makes total sense. Yeah. No, I mean, if, if you're going to have a blob film in one of the, because even in the trailer and everything else, you, for the original, you always get that theater sequence, right? Where the blobs coming oh. in and everybody's running out of the movie theater. I, I love what they did to this one. But, um, you know, most movies of this type maybe have, I don't know, one or two scenes where if, if you were in the 80s and uh, you had a VHS player, you'd bring your friend over and you're like, oh, my God, look at this. And you'd, you'd watch those scenes over and over again. Like, how did they do it, et cetera? Dude, there are like four or five, maybe six in here. Oh, there's a, yeah, yes. Are just yes. a standout. I mean, you talked about it. It's Paul Taylor's death in the hospital. Um, how they achieve that is ridiculous. And well, even the, the homeless guy, you know, they pull down the, you know, the sheet or whatever. And it's like, he's basically like this popsicle that was yes. left out in the sun too long. Is it's just crazy away. Oh gosh. No. And that's, uh, they show that on, um, well, <laughs> that screen factory cover art is terrible. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That that's why I love my original DVD cover art because it is that sequence where you see his face and he's trying to reach out to it, Paul's face. Yeah. And I, I love how like Meg grabs his arm and then all of a sudden ends up pulling it off. And and that's how you start the film. So you're thinking, yeah. what is gonna come after this? Then you get the cook that is going through the drain, which that has two things. A, it's a great special effects, but it's confirmation of all your fears about sticking your hand in a kitchen sink drain. Yeah, I I don't know why he did that. That you you say no one makes a bad decision in this film. Him putting his hand down that drain to unclog it is a bad decision. Uh, dude, bad decision. I've, I've done that to get Ugh. whatever stuck out of there, so I understand Ugh. it if the plunger isn't getting it. But even even when you're doing it in real life, you're like, I don't even want to know what I'm going to pull out of this. Right? You just yeah. you don't expect it to pull you through the drain, which is crazy. Then that phone the, book, the uh, the leg and the arm sticking out at the very end is, yeah. is just the chef's kiss to that scene where it's like, oh, you didn't have to do that, but they did, and that's why I love that scene even more because they kind of punctuate it with the leg, with the shoe, and then the arm sticking out. Yeah, and that's followed up with what I will call, let, let's say that this is the uh, chopping mall scene. So remember in chopping mall when we were talking about that last year, and we were talking about the robot laser. That yeah, shoots the head off. explosion. You get the head explosion, which is quite possibly the best head explosion ever. And it's an amazing use of a mannequin. I think you've got another in a watermelon. In a watermelon. <laughs> yeah. I think you've got another sort of chopping mall shot with that phone booth. Uh, um, so it really amps up the creepiness where you see Herb's face because she's calling to get, you know, Herb. And she's like, no, uh, she he well went down to the diner. Next thing you know, there's Herb's face. He got eaten by the yeah. blob, which is I didn't expect that. And then all of a sudden when it crushes the phone booth and I, it obviously is a mannequin, but how 
it just crushes her. It's crazy. I actually had to rewind that. Like, how did they do that? I was fascinated with that effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those death scenes that kind of plays into your fears too. Like you're stuck in this. Well, not now. Cause there are no phone booths, but like back in the day, you'd be in a phone booth and you're like, man, I, if a blob comes in here, I'm, I, I can't do anything. I'm yeah, where stuck. do you go? So, you're done. Yeah, exactly. And then you get the movie theater and when it's on the ceiling and at this point it has all these different textures, it's been eating people. So you get these glimpses. It is absolutely horrific. And then just falls on top of that projectionist. Those are sequences that most movies you're lucky to get one of those in. Right. Yeah. And you've got all of this stuff happening and you, you had mentioned the model work. I think the model work holds up. I, I think it's, I don't know. It works for me, right? In the context of yeah. how they're using it. The only special effect that doesn't hold up is some of the 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 action that goes on in front of the projected screen. Yeah. So, and, and a great example is Megan Bryan running from the blob in the diner to go into the freezer. Like that that shot just doesn't look right because that effect, I think, is dated. I, I would say if you go back to 1988, it, it was dated. They're, they're literally running in place in that, in that scene. Yeah, they're running in place with a projector kind of on top of them with the blob yeah. that's going across. Yeah. And it, it doesn't look good. But outside of that, everything, even in today's standards, I mean, CGI, I don't think could pull off that that phone booth, phone booth sequence no. and, and make it no. look good. No. And, and to be fair, I'm sure like – if if they had all the time in the world, they could have probably made that sequence better. But you know, they're they're. I, I saw something where this film finished in like they wrapped in May, and like this movie literally came out in August. So they're going up against a very very hard deadline. So again, I I, I don't want to shit on people who did the effects in this because ninety nine point nine percent of them are are amazing. Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah. 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 Like this film literally was wrapped in May and they had it out in August. So they were going, going and going on this film. So no, it's, I, I agree with you. I, I, I want to talk about the, the climactic battle for a second. To me, it is exemplary of eighties movie making. So you have a horror film. Why? Cause you have a bazooka. You, yeah. So <laughs> you've got rocket launchers uh-huh. You have Shawnee Smith firing an M16. Um, saying a one-liner, right? Saying one yeah, so she's fantastic. Like I I was just all jacked up when she jumps up on there firing the M16, then here comes the rocket launcher. I'm like, "Yes. This is pure 80s action sort of climactic battle in a in a horror science fiction monster film." And then she turns around and takes that hard fall and slams. I mean, I don't know if it's just the sound effect. I, I'm like, oh, Shawnee Smith is dead. She just. <laughs> she, I was waiting for like the oof sound effect, like oof. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. And then you get this huge explosion. I actually thought it was it was really exciting stuff. Like I I was in it, but I think it's the thing that made me love this film like ten times more is you have this great monster film and you get into this final sequence where they're starting to blow stuff up and M16's rocket launchers, she takes that fall, he's trying. And all of a sudden I'm like, yes, this this is like one of the most perfect 80s horror films ever. And it belongs in the 80s. It, it's so yeah, good. And you got your guys like in protective suits running around, you know, like all that. And 
and yeah, like when they put that car on top of the sewer thing and he shoots it with the bazooka. Yeah. A, like it doesn't blow up any of the street, just the, you know, the, uh, what is that thing called? The, the, the sewer manhole cover, the manhole cover. Yeah. It only blows up the manhole cover and the truck above it. Nothing else is hurts. Um, well, so then fi- op- fire comes down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They had to get but, out of the way. Yeah. But that also gives way to the sequence of the big blob coming out of the, the sewer and kind of like, kind of gushering out a little bit and then coming down on the ground and smashing people and stuff. It, it just, again, like you were saying, you're lucky in films to get one or two of those sequence. I think you get like six or seven in this one that are just <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, that's so great. And it all worked. I mean, this film, as soon as it's over, I can immediately go back and watch it again and just have a lot of fun with it. Like this is, Oh yeah. Yes. This is, yes. It's good film. It's just good filmmaking, but it's also good comfort filmmaking. So, yeah, I, and, and like, it's funny you brought up chopping mall. Like I put this right in the same kind of vein as chopping mall where it's, it's, I just want to see these people die in creative ways. Yes. I care about these people way more than those characters in chopping mall. Cause they're not chewing gum and having sex in a furniture store, but I, I do want a high body count when it comes to like having the blob run around this town and it, it just gives you so much great stuff. I mean, the guy, that guy's Paul's face like melts off and you're yeah. like, Oh my gosh, this is the first real death of the film. And like, it, if you're starting off with that, like you're going for it. And then the kid dies, the kid dies. Yeah. I, I couldn't it. believe that. I could not believe that. I mean, the kid gets eaten I didn't comes expect out that. of the water. And it's like, yeah, oh my gosh, I'm melting. They're still throwing these curveballs at you. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. Eighty minutes into the film, and you're like, well, there's only twenty minutes left, and the kid died. What's going to happen? Yeah, so, surely they're not going to kill kids. And you're like, yep, yep, they kill the kid. Yep. Uh, what did you think about the the father uh, condom joke in in the beginning with the uh, oh, pharmacist? That the the <laughs> reveal of that joke still gets me when he pulls down the paper and it's him and there's that just pause. Yes. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. Um, man, yeah, it's, it gets me every time. I think that is though, that makes me laugh out loud. This movie isn't, would you call this a horror comedy? It's got some really funny moments, but I don't think it's designed as a horror comedy. I don't think they're trying to do the comedy as much. I think it's just people. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's just horror comedy. I don't. I don't know why. Um, like, there's not a whole lot of difference between this and Shopping Mall in a way, and that's a. Uh, I, don't that's know. Not a I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't there's, think there's so. some funny moments so. to it, and yeah. I think well, just because a film has some funny moments doesn't make it automatically a comedy. So no, it's just straight horror. Yeah, I, I think it's using some of that comedy to take the edge off of the tension, but this is full on trying to make you uncomfortable, and um, it ensures that you're not going to guess how it's going to end or who's going to make it. I mean, I I think its intent is to scare you, to gross you out, um, to thrill you, and it and it's so effective at all those things. Yeah, yeah, it. Uh I don't, I, you know, it's, I always do like a, uh, like put on some horror films for my neighbors and they come over in the theater and we watch some stuff and I'm like, is this, is this one I need to add to the rotation? Cause like 
it's more fun watching this film with other people. Like sadly I had to watch this by myself on Saturday, but I just remember watching this with my friends and, and when stuff happens, you know, you just all like, Oh my God. Or, Oh, like those, those moments is why I'm, I'm sad that this film didn't do as well in the theater is because there's nothing better than seeing a horror movie in the theater with all these people and everyone has the same exact reaction when something happens. And that's kind of why I'm bummed that, you know, this movie kind of struggled in the theater is because there's so many of those good moments in this movie that it should have played fantastically in the theater. But sadly you're going to see it and there's four people in your theater Yeah, or, you know, no, no, there were tons person. of, there were tons of mine. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, what else are you going to do? Yeah. Shush. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think you said this already. Like if I were doing a drive-in double bill, I would definitely do like chopping mall in the blob. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. That'd be great. Be so much fun. So fun. Yeah. So I have this question for you. I've been thinking about this. So last week we talked about the Wolfman and one of the things that, um, you, Sammy and I, we spent a lot of time on is we talked about the original Wolfman and, you know, granted that film had a, I don't know, <laughs> It had a big hill to climb because of our love yeah. of the original. I think, yeah, I think the, the original Wolfman is much better than the original Blob. Yes. However, I do think the Wolfman tried to do everything that the Blob did. But my question to you is, like, why does this film, because it, it makes a lot of choices that deviate from the original content. And it's super successful, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But why does this one work? Whereas the Wolfman tried to do the exact same thing, I think, at, you know, take the basic story, hit all of the beats, but then try to throw some twists in. Why did that one? Which, to me, it fell flat on its face. But yeah, I agree. Okay, so why did that one fall flat on its face, but this one worked? I mean, a this one has a lot of charm to it. Okay, um, and it's. I felt like the Wolfman was so self-serious. Like there was no sort of joy at all. Like, yeah, this people are dying in this movie, but there's still something that you want to see. And it, it's, I hate to use the word joyful, but you know what I mean? Like there is a joy going on, whether it's the, the effects or uh, just, I don't know, the joy of seeing people get just, totally mutilated by this blob. Well, there's some, um, there's a bunch of mutilations in the Wolfman. I mean, yeah, we talked about and, head and rolling the best and stuff part like about that. The, the last part about the, the Wolfman is sort of the gore and things like that. But you know, I don't care about Lawrence and I don't care about his father <laughs> and I don't care about Emily Blunt. And I don't care about his brother. I don't care about any of that stuff. Uh, the Romani. I don't care about any of that stuff in that film because none of that, None of the people had chemistry. None of the story beats really I cared about. Um, this one immediately, like, I care about Meg. Um, I even care about, you know, her father and, and, and that relationship. The Meg father relationship in this film is 100 times better than the Lawrence uh, father relationship in The Wolfman. Like, I believe that relationship way more than, than their relationship. Um, and even the Brian Meg relationship is way better than Emily Blunt and Benicio del Toro. So it, this one gets all those beats, right? Uh, the writing is much better. Like I said, like even the brick line, like just all those things that get right. Uh, the Wolfman just didn't get anything right. Well, I mean, what did the Wolfman do besides gore correctly? 
I I don't think much. I mean, the yeah. look of the Wolfman, I still think is fantastic. Yeah. I I think, but I, I'm with you. So uh, the the special effects in this film are better. I mean, I know the Wolfman won an Academy Award, but let's face it: that if if we are comparing the Wolfman to the Blob, the special effects in this film are just eight times better than what's in the Wolfman. Yeah, I mean, even the best scene in the Wolfman, which is the the asylum thing, I mean, I think I can name like five scenes that are better from the block. Like the hospital scene is better than that. Um, the the theater scene is better than that. You know, like there's yeah, numerous it, scenes that are better in the blob than the best scene in the Wolfman. No, I agree, and and I I'm with you. The high point of the Wolfman is that hospital scene where he's losing it, he's transforming. You get to the wolf. And what's cool about that is they do it in some type of daylight. It's not hidden by the shadows. But there's so many things in the blob, like that hospital sequence right in the beginning. You're, you're seeing that, right? The phone booth, yeah. you're seeing it. Yeah. And the special effects are 10 times better. Um, the tension in the blob, there's tension. There, There's no tension in the Wolfman, yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, did you ever think in the Wolfman that Emily Blunt's character was going to die? No, I, I, I'm, yeah. and that's the thing. I think, th- and that leads into another comment that you make, which is you care about these characters. The performances, I mean, I hate saying this, but you're absolutely right. Kevin Dillon and Shawnee Smith um, outact Benicio Del Toro, Emily Blunt. Um, I would even go so far as to say Herb and Fran just their little exchanges and their performances are, I don't know, 10 times better than what Anthony Hopkins delivers. I mean, everybody in this film is you 100% believe those characters. Whereas I go, Oh, that's Anthony Hopkins doing Anthony Hopkins. That's Benicio. And, and as a result of that, you don't really care your distance from those characters. You get close to these characters and that adds to the tension because you, the blob is taking out people you care about. Yeah, and to be fair, the script for The Blob is 100 times better than the script in The Wolfman. Well, yeah, and for two reasons, I think. Um, so The Wolfman tries to introduce a twist to keep it fresh, which is daddy's a wolf, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I And we talked about this. I respect that. I don't think it works, right? The twist here is, oh, hey, it's not an alien. It's an experiment in biological warfare that's kind of crashed down, and we actually want to harness it and release it on other countries. Hey, that's that adds an extra uh, an extra villain to the film, mm-hmm. not just the blob, and and it works right. And then the other thing is we the ultimate we, villain, the U.S. government. That's right. <laughs> uh, and then the Wolfman couldn't stick a tragic ending, right? So it it actually tried to shoot three or four different endings and go, what's what's the most tragic? Well, let's use this one. And the thing I like about the blob is the blob does a great job with its ending and it gives you something menacing and creepy because if you remember the original they dropped the blob off into the antarctic and they're like well Mm -hmm. hope it's safe and it's like the end question mark so with this one you get this preacher who has all these scars from being badly burned right and now he's going from town to town doing these revival um, you know, sermons under under a tent, and he's carrying around a piece of the blob and talking yeah, about yeah, talking about the end of times, the end of times, right? and I'm like, yeah. that is a great apocalyptic ending, and it's creepy. So, yeah, I just it, yeah. those those are to me. You said it. I mean, this is a great example of how you do a remake correctly. And what's fascinating is you pick the Wolfman, and and I think. <laughs> 
I, I think Joe tried to do exactly everything Chuck did <laughs> and and Chuck just aced the exam and and Joe got like a D minus. Yeah, yeah. Joe's asking to retake that test again at some point in time. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's funny that we did a back-to-back remakes. Um, I don't think we did that on purpose, but I, I'm glad that we did because one of them completely nails the landing and the other one literally failed to even take off. Yeah. No, that's how, that's how the gap is on these. Like one took, did a round trip around the world, safe landing. The other one literally crashed and burned during takeoff. <laughs> no, I agree. hundred percent. No, I mean, it's, and I, I feel like we've just spent an hour, like, gushing over this. I, I cannot, it's hard for me to be critical of this film. I mean, the only critical thing I can say is like, Hey, that one special effect didn't look as great. I don't remember it looking as great even in 1988, but even then it has a charm to it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I literally don't find, um, a lot of faults with it. I can't find any, anything where I would go, well, let's talk about this. And this really didn't work for me. Everything in this film works. Yeah. I, I love this movie. Um, and the fact that you said doing this and chopping mall together, like literally my Saturday, um, after UK plays Georgia and probably gets beat by a hundred points, <laughs> I'm literally going to watch this again and I'm going to watch chopping mall right after And That's going to be a great evening. Yeah. I, think, I can't wait. I think I'm going to try and talk with Angel and Cameron and say, well, after we watch our traditional Avon Costello meets Frank Stein and the thing stuff like from another world, can, can we do a double of chopping mall and the plot? Cause that, that is fantastic. I love that. Well, what else? Any other thoughts on this one? Um, I, I did want to bring up some kind of funny little notes I, I found um, during uh, my research. Yeah. Um, Russell and Darabon um, brought the blob to New Line um, as an idea, but they passed so they could do uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. Okay. Which I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and then the bike stunt um, where he successfully jumps over the ravine or whatever um, literally has a helicopter and a truck. And they captured all that in camera. Really? So, I mean, that is like a complicated stunt that they pull off and they have a helicopter and a truck and a guy jumping a motorcycle all in camera. They captured it all in camera, which is pretty amazing. So not only are they doing those special effects of the creature, but they're doing complicated stunts. Um, you know, so there, there's this film just is doing so much, um, this one bumps me out that it's that we have to do this on this podcast because there's nothing more I would I would like than for this movie to be successful um, because it it really earns it. Like when I say I love this film, I love this film, um, and I'm I'm kind of glad because I hadn't watched it in a really long time, and we had talked about it last Halloween, and I'm like, well, we're gonna do it again, and I know we're gonna do it next time, so I'll just wait. Um, now that now that I saw this again, I'm like I'm watching this every October now. Like this is solidly into my 30 films I'm watching during October. Yeah, it's it for for horror films. Uh, this to me kind of goes into the pantheon a little bit in terms of yep. especially like you said the group watch. I'm with you 100. I mean I, I would love nothing to be like oh I'm jumping on a plane, we're gonna go hang out Saturday, watch the basketball, and then we're watching the Blob and Chopping Mall. Yep, they're they're so much fun. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, uh, with some listener email that, uh, came in on this one, but I okay. do want to give a shout out. Um, first of all, I, to Philip. So I didn't know that like Rob Zombie tried to do a remake of the blob. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I I remember reading that a while ago. It was probably what ten. It was right after he did Halloween two. Like there was a lot of talk of him doing uh, a remake of the Blob, and I don't know. I I I wonder in the right hands, not Rob Zombie's hands, if someone could make the Blob work um, and make it successful. Because I feel like if you did it. And you went practical, which is going to be a hard sell. But if you did it and did it well, like, could you spend $20 million in 2021 money and make a $100 million, you know, $100 million film? Like, could you do that? I think you could if you did it right. Yeah. I might. My fear, though, is if you remade it today. And I think, you know, Philip sent us a lot of great articles, a lot of behind the scenes videos on this. Um, I didn't I knew nothing about the Rob Zombie remake until he sent something about it. So um, a big shout out to him. It just shows you never listen to what I say, because I believe I mentioned that during the the Wolfman episode. I tune you out sometimes. Um, No, I do remember you saying it. But to me, it was uh, I didn't know how, I guess far in the process they got in the fact that they're still trying to do it. If they try and do it today, unfortunately I think it's all CGI and I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Um, but I'm not against remakes. I mean, obviously if I, if I were like, don't remake anything, we wouldn't have this gym, but I did want to share, uh, some feedback from Philip because he wrote in on this one. I mean, as, as soon as we kind of put out there, Hey, next week's show is the blob. We got a lot of great responses. So Philip wrote in and said, hey, movie lovers, I love The Blob. So love is all capital, okay? It's a fun, scary 80s popcorn flick that delivers the chills, jumps, and entertainment for what it was made for. I feel like it's one of those films that you can regularly sit down and just enjoy. If you pick apart the science, you obviously will find something quick and fast to pick apart. This is a remake that took the best aspects of a 50s drive-in flick and tried to add some 80s effects. It also throws in some twists and turns of the usual horror sci-fi tropes. It sets it up as a story about Donovan Leitch and Shawnee Smith as lead characters, then pulls a Janet Lee, so he's using your Hitchcock reference here, on Donovan's character and switches it to Kevin Dillon's anti-hero. Some great secondary characters that you get to love then feel their terror when the blob puts them in jeopardy. To this day, even having rewatched it many times, I still get chills when film legend Candy Clark is trapped in a phone booth with no escape. How about the awesome special effects on this? Who can forget the dishwasher putting his hand in the sink? This was a time when CGI wasn't turning every movie into this live-action cartoon meld of unbelievable Scooby-Doo movies. It may not be highbrow or worthy of the most prestigious awards. Philip, I'll challenge you on that. But it's super fun movie to sit back and enjoy without too much picking about. So that was his take. You kill, on it. you kill a kid in a movie, I'll give you an award. Yeah, um, I, I actually think this film is a lot smarter than I think people would give it credit for. Um, I would give it, um, a, you know, if the Wolfman won a, an Academy Award for special effects, this one should have won an Academy Award for something. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know when they started doing. When did they start doing special effects Academy Awards? Was it? I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, a yeah, lot of those sure. categories, I mean, a lot of those categories would be like makeup effects because I'm sure yeah. like movies like the exorcist in the seventies were uh, oh, yeah. getting nominated and yeah. stuff for that. But no, I mean, 
Um, I, I think that was the thing with the Wolfman. I mean, it's Academy Award for, you know, makeup effects, et cetera. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I love the fact that this is getting some love now, uh, you know, but please shout factory, come up with a different cover. Cause that, yeah, that well, crazy. the thing I've, I discovered about that is when you open it up, you can actually flip the cover around and the, the other, the alternate cover is way better. Oh, good. Uh, I, so I, I need to go I, flip I, I mine. Then. Yeah. I need yeah, to flip mine. It's, it's atrocious. Um, so where, again, we, Josh and I were talking about this and you're on the, like the thing I think is the best horror remake is this number two? I don't know. I'd have to give it some thought. I, I would yeah. put it in the Pantheon. Like, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know how many movies are in the pan, uh, the Pantheon, but if you're going through remakes, I think this is a super smart, well-done remake that improves on the original. Now, the thing, yeah. it it's tricky because I think it's an amazing remake, but I love the original thing from another world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's a different beast, right? Yeah. So um, the thing from another world. Both of them do practical effects pretty much better than any film. So, you know, maybe that's what we're going for here. Yeah. Um, And whereas the blob, I think, is taking a film that was okay for the 50s, has some charm to it as a 50s monster film and vastly improves upon it. I can't sit here and say Carpenter's version vastly improves on the original because I think the original is an all-time classic. Yeah. Uh, So I think what people should do when they hear remakes of something is not have that knee jerk reaction that it's immediately going to like destroy the original. Right. There is proof that you can improve on the source material. Um, so let's, uh, let's back up the truck a little bit when we hear, Oh, you know, such and such is remaking, especially things that are from forties, fifties and sixties. Like it, it's okay to go back and remake that because I think, the ambition of a lot of those filmmakers back then just couldn't keep up with, you know, like modern filmmaking now. Right. Um, and, and even this, you know, 30 years later, the the blob was able to accomplish so much more than that 1950s version, just because of how much special effects had come even in those 30 years. So, you know, we're 30 years out from, from this remake. So, you know, we could do a lot more sadly if they did it today, you know, like you said, it'd be a CGI, you know, blob fest. And I don't know if I want to see that, but you know, maybe they make it look awesome. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I'm with you 99, but it starts with the, it starts with the script. Like this movie. Yes. The, the deaths and the kills and all that stuff are amazing, but you have to get the script, right? You have to get character moments. Correct. And that's what separates this from other horror movies of the time is getting those script moments and the character moments. Correct. I agree. It's, it's Frank Darabont and uh, Chuck Russell laid the groundwork for an amazing film on paper and everything just fell into place. And I, I, I agree with the how, remake how did, statement, like, except the, for the Chuck Russell thing. Like yeah. also like I thought you look, you see those films and you're like, this guy did really good work. He should have worked more. No, I agree. Uh, the, the only film that can never be remade. Absolutely ever just don't ever touch it and Dwayne Johnson I'm looking at you you need to big trouble in little china we yes back the f off big trouble in little china that should never be remade it is a perfect film don't touch it yeah or pulp fiction let's let's just yeah okay put those two out there don't ever try and remake those um i swear on everything holy i will hunt you down no i'm just kidding 
but I'm going to be really, really angry and write you a, a strongly worded email. So <laughs> you have the rocks email. <laughs> I don't know. Is it the rock at gmail.com? <laughs> rock at gmail.com. I should just send something. Hey, is this your email, Dwayne? Uh, okay. So I know the answer to this question, but Brad, we just got done uh, talking in great length about the amazing blob from 1988. So formally, I've got to ask you the question because that's the whole shtick of the uh, podcast. But is the blob from 1988 a bomb? Absolutely not. It's not a bomb. It is one of my newly discovered, even though I had seen it a long time ago and was one of my favorite films growing up. I hadn't seen it in a long time since, but I'm glad I kind of had this rediscovery of it. And it'll be one of those films that I now have on like a yearly uh, rewatch schedule in October. So uh, whoever, I know we got a lot of requests to do this one. So um, if you requested this for us to do, I appreciate that because I was able to go back and watch this again and fall in love with it all over again. Yes, I, I agree 100%. It's not a bomb. Thank you to everybody who wrote in and recommended this thing. Um, you are 100% right. It is one of the best remakes out there. I agree it's a crime that this didn't become a hit out of the gate, but I'm glad so many people have rediscovered it. And I would really, really like to challenge that audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and just say, look, folks, go. If you haven't seen this film, trust us on it. You're going to love it, especially if you like this type of film, you know, 80s horror. It's got some great action in it, too. But, um, yeah, that that audience score needs to go up. And I think I think more people need to discover this thing. Don't be, you know, don't look at the Screen Factory cover or Kevin Dillon's hair and go, nope. I mean, I know those two things alone might, you know, deter you They're from watching bad. it. They're pretty bad. But I'm telling you, you're missing out if you haven't watched this film. It's so good. And again, thank you for everybody who's been writing in over the last. I mean, it's weird. We got this last year. And then I think as Halloween season were coming around, then, you know, this came up again. Like, hey, are, did, are you guys going to do the blob? And it was like, yep, we're it's definitely. I think this is one of the most requested ones that have come through. I think so. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's fantastic. Well. What are we doing next week, Brad? Cheer pick. So yeah. Um, so speaking of all-time favorites, um, the Blair Witch Project um, is probably was well, the first film I ever was able to drive myself to, um, and it holds a very special place in my heart um, because I saw it with my friends, and it was just it was one of those moments I will never forget my entire life. I will be eighty-five, um, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, still buying Blu-rays and uh, and thinking about that time, my friends and I went to go see the Blair Witch Project. Um, in 2016, they did a pseudo sequel to that film called Blair Witch. Um, so we are doing Blair Witch from 2016. Yes, uh, it it's going to be a big episode too, right? It is. We're going to have two of our favorite guests on at the same time. Uh, if you listen to that episode. Should probably pack a lunch because yeah. uh, both of those guys that are going to be on our episode love to talk and we love hearing them and we love them being on the show and kind of having them on at the same time is going to create some sort of crossing of sh- streams of some kind. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I, so, I feel okay. like all of the research that we can do is not even going to come close to what these two will provide and at the end of the day, I think you and I, it's just going to be wrangling cats, right? We just got to keep things on track because I have yeah. a feeling between the four of us, it's going to just go off the rails several times. 
Yeah, I hope it does. In a fun way. It's going to be a fun episode. I, I look forward to it. Uh, I love those two guys, so I can't wait to have them on at the same time. Yeah, I'm super excited. Now, I have uh, a question. Are you going to go back and watch the original Blair Witch or Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows? Or are you just going to watch? I, I, through the week, yes. I will definitely watch uh, Blair Witch Project for sure. Um, I, I, I guess I'll watch Book of Shadows. I don't know if Blair Witch... Because I saw Blair Witch... Um, in the theater, and I can't remember if it makes any allusion to Book of Shadow at all, but I might go back and watch. And um, I will tell you, the uh, I forget when it was. I think it was 2019. They released the Blair Witch video game. Yeah. It's actually pretty good. Oh, really? Um, so I might check that out again. Um, I have it, so I might download it again and just kind of throw it on and see uh, – see about it because I, I remember liking it quite a bit so well yeah. I, the Blair where it's gonna be Blair, a Blair Witch week for me I know where Blair Witch was filmed isn't too far from where I live here in Maryland um, oh yeah I might I might have to try and see if I can squeeze in a little trip out there because they do tours it's October they're always doing tours and oh stuff. yeah yeah but yeah. man I got so many movies to catch up on so I, I don't know if that's gonna happen I'll be lucky to get uh, three Blair Witch movies in plus I wouldn't mind going back and reading the comic book that they did um, when the first one came <laughs> out. So I've got that. There, yeah, yeah, I do remember. Yes, yes. That might be um, our contribution. Is just yeah, yeah. We watched we'll all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know what, man? I, I have a soft spot for the Blair Witch Project so much. Like it, it is probably again one of my favorite movie going uh, outings like of all time. I remember that one in seeing episode one in the theater in 1998. Uh, those two moments are like ingrained in my mind forever. So that's right. Well, Blair, Witch is uh Tabitha's favorite scary film. So it's the film that scared her to death. And even after that came out, Blair, Witch project or Blair, Witch? the Blair, Witch project, the first one. Okay. So we saw in the theater, just totally terrified her. Um, to the point to this day, if she walks into a room and it's dark or whatever, and you're standing in the corner, you know, in the corner, yeah. she will, uh, she will get freaked out. So I, I can't wait. So Brad, if anybody else wants to give us some amazing recommendations like they did for the blob, how do they reach out to us? Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, again, Philip, thank you for sending all those links. Um, I watched all of them and read all the articles. It was, it was, it's always fun to dive into a film and just kind of give yourself up to something for such a long period of time. It's hard during October because, you know, I watch horror movies out throughout the whole year, but I, I try to make a conscious effort to watch more in October. Um, so I'm trying to watch more, you know, this month. Um, but it's always fun to just kind of carve out some time for one specific film and, and go into a deep dive and, I appreciate you doing like literally like 95% of my research. Yeah, that was awesome, so, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much. So listen, folks, I I hope you're getting your costumes picked out. Halloween's right around the corner. I hope you're having some big parties. What what what, what are you who, who are you being this year, Troy? You I don't know. I did uh I did Bandit last year. I got my Burt Reynolds going on. I, I don't know what I'm gonna do yeah. this year. Did you give some free mustache rides? No, sure didn't. Nope. <laughs> did not at okay. all. No. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't even thought about it yet. I've been so freaking busy with travel and work and everything else. I feel like this is like, uh, we're coming out of 
we're not out of COVID, but I feel like things are opening up a little bit more work-wise. So it's kept me busy. But yeah, man, listen, I always say this. I don't, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. We're just so thankful that you downloaded the podcast. Uh, you're interacting with us. You send us messages. We love hearing from you. And um, I hope you enjoyed hearing our thoughts on this week's The Blob. And hey, we're, uh, we're still in spooky mode. So come back next week. We promise an epic, I mean epic show when we talk about the Blair Witch. So we'll catch you next week. Don't lose your head. <laughs>